I've lived this in the flesh because my sister died from COVID-19, said Peri Campos Ochoa, who works in Chota's small hospital, the only one in the town. Several colleagues have died, and I've had neighbors who have died. The overall death toll in Chota is unclear, but Feliciano Almtamarino Guevara, a Catholic priest in the town, said around half a dozen masses a day are being celebrated for the dead or ill. Article by Marcello Rochabrun. Reuters, published on June 4th, 2021. Welcome to the Politics of Pandemics, Episode 7, Under the Shadow of the Old Mountain. The Republic of Peru is an incredibly beautiful country. In 2017, I had the opportunity to visit Machu Picchu, and I can say that I would return to Peru in a heartbeat if I ever had the chance. Three days is not enough to experience all the wonders Peru has to offer. The diverse nation of 33 million people is known best for its rich history, including the civilizations that built cities in the sky like Machu Picchu. It is also known for some amazing biodiversity, from the mountainous Andes, where Lake Titicaca sits, to the Amazon where many remote, untouched communities still live. But in 2021, Peru also became known for another grim fact, the highest per capita death rate from COVID-19 in the world. This came from a review of the excess deaths performed in June 2021, which broadened the definition of death by COVID-19. Before this, only confirmed positive cases were counted as COVID-19 deaths, and Peru had 69,342 official deaths from COVID-19. Following a review that included suspected cases and deaths 60 days after a positive test, that number increased to over 180,000, in line with excess death studies. This gives Peru the highest per capita COVID-19 death rate in the world. As of November 15, 2021, Six people per thousand Peruvians have died from COVID-19, nine times the global average and nearly twice the rate of deaths in Bulgaria, the country with the next highest death rate per capita. We will dissect the reasoning behind that statistic later. Whether you agree with the definition, Peru was indeed hit very hard by COVID-19. Peru tried to do what the rest of the world did, lock everyone down immediately, implement social distancing in a home quarantine, and purchase vaccines when it became available. But every step of the way, structural problems arose that made even the most basic measures difficult and underlines how a country's ability to implement COVID mitigation measures can be hindered by economic factors, corruption, and the failure to take into account the way people live their lives day to day. Peru has had a rather tumultuous political journey in the lead-up to 2020, even if you just count the years following the 2016 presidential election. That year, center-right candidate Pedro Pablo Kaczynski narrowly defeated Keiko Fujimori in the runoff for president, the first non-socialist administration in a long time. If that latter surname sounds familiar to anyone who knows their Latin American history, it's because Keiko is the daughter and presumptive heir of Alberto Fujimori, 
the former dictator who ruled Peru from 1990 to 2000, and was at the time in prison for various human rights violations, including those committed by death squads under his watch, as well as embezzlement and fraud. Despite the imprisonment, the cult of personality as well as the neoliberal economics and cultural conservatism that Fujimori advocated was still strong in Peru. And although Keiko would lose the presidential race three times, she lost by less than 1% in the last two times that she ran, and her party still won an absolute majority in Congress. From the moment Kaczynski began his presidency until pretty much now, Peruvian government has had a series of overlapping and successive crises that kept much of the Peruvian executive branch crippled under constant scandal. Wikipedia lists 10 so far, so far being the key phrase here, and while I'd love to go through it all, I think a documentary about Peruvian politics would be better suited for this deep dive, and a majority of them are irrelevant to the pandemic. What is important for now is that these multiple crises resulted in five separate presidents in five years, multiple arrests, and an economy left hanging in the balance even before COVID-19 showed its face. Which, in case you're curious, Wikipedia lists as the eighth crisis and brings with it multiple government scandals of its own. So where does this leave the people of Peru? Well, economically, Peru is one of the fastest growing economies in South America driven primarily by its mining and farming industries. Peru's land provides them with plenty to export, and while the country also takes in a lot of revenue from tourism and manufacturing, copper and other raw metals still drive the majority of their exports. And while Peru's beautiful and plentiful landscape provides them with the resources and tourists eager to gawk at the natural beauty and ancient ruins, the unforgiving Amazonian rainforests and mountainous regions also make it hard for the bounties of prosperity to reach many of the remote villages and indigenous tribes dotting Peru. These are communities that take days to reach through multiple trips on dirt roads, rivers, and foot. And even though electricity may not reach them, even COVID-19 did, to disastrous effects. recorded its first case of COVID-19 on March 6, 2020. And once the authorities realized it was not an isolated case, the government acted swiftly to implement a lockdown on March 15th, barely 10 days after. Schools were closed, all public transport and non-essential travel was halted, and Peruvians needed an online form to go outside. The military helped enforce the quarantine order. In some ways, Peru acted as quickly as China did forcing a very strict lockdown hoping to flatten the curve. But while the Wuhan lockdown began to see results after five weeks, Peru's case numbers kept going up. By the end of April, 37,000 Peruvians were confirmed positive, with 1,000 confirmed to have died. The Peruvian government was desperate. The strict lockdown took an immediate and extreme toll on the Peruvian economy, and many Peruvians who moved to the city or mining towns from rural communities for jobs suddenly found themselves stranded and jobless, unable to earn money or go home. The president, Martin Vizcarra, begged the people on May 23rd to follow the lockdown rules and avoid, quote, individualistic and selfish behavior. But by May 31st, 
Peru had 164,000 positives and 4,500 deaths. That day, 8,805 people were confirmed positive. The number of daily deaths for the first wave would max out at 800 per day. The 2021 wave that began in January would be even worse. So the question is why, despite having an extremely strict and early lockdown, did Peru fail to contain COVID-19? We can start with the obvious, which is the low investment in healthcare. According to an article by Luke Taylor in the British Medical Journal, published on March 9, 2021, Peru has had a perennially underfunded healthcare system and lack of space in their hospitals. Patricia Garcia was Peru's Minister of Health in 2016-2017, and she says, For decades, we've had an underfunded health system with poor primary care and hospitals that were outdated. By the time the pandemic hit, we had underpaid health professionals and very low numbers of intensive care beds. The entirety of Peru, a nation of 33 million, only has 1,656 ICU beds. By comparison, the city of Bogota in Colombia, with 7.4 million people and its own struggles with COVID-19, has 1,800 beds. The pandemic broke a system already straining at the edges. It also means many cases and deaths went undetected and untreated, a problem exacerbated by government mismanagement and mistakes. For instance, at the start of the pandemic, Peru bought millions of tests from China, but they were found to be substandard. So even the terrifying numbers reported in 2020 would be an undercount as the 2021 review would find. Finally, it's time we talk about privilege and think about how you went through lockdown. Maybe you had the luxury of a well-stocked pantry and fridge and enough money to buy groceries to last some time so you didn't have to go out every other day for food. Maybe you could do your work or studies online. The internet has made many of the lockdown measures we implemented for the pandemic possible. But for Peruvians, many poorer communities did not have that. Some Peruvians did not even have refrigerators, either due to poverty or a lack of access to a steady power supply. So they need to shop daily. Around 7 in 10 Peruvians work in formal jobs, the highest in the region, which left them most vulnerable to exposure or food insecurity during the pandemic. In a time like this, you re either risk exposure at work or you go hungry. Even the government's attempt to distribute aid to the poor ended up spreading the virus even more. I'm going to quote directly from an article written by Nora Esperidu, a Peruvian pediatrician writing again in the British Medical Journal. Quote, On 16 March, the state granted a bonus of 110 US dollars to, to be distributed to 2.7 million vulnerable families. Then, a second bonus as the quarantine was extended to 800,000 more families. This generated queues at the bank since dawn, without any respect for physical distancing. In addition, baskets with basic necessities have been distributed, but have not reached all poor families. Civil society groups have also organized and tried to help by bringing food to those in need.
I'm gonna detour it a bit and give some context on the political turmoil that's been plaguing Peru up to now. In 2018, the elected president Pedro Pablo Kaczynski resigned due to allegations of vote buying and was replaced by his vice president Martin Vizcarra, who was in power when COVID-19 hit. All through his tenure, Vizcarra faced severe opposition from Congress, firstly from Fujimori loyalists, and when he held a snap election to resolve that deadlock, the incoming centrist Congress, led by Manuel Merino, ended up becoming even more hostile to Vizcarra. I'm going to gloss over a lot here again, but on November 9, 2020, Martin Vizcarra was removed as president after his second impeachment. At the time, with no vice president under him, Manuel Merino became president according to Peru's rules of succession. Given that Marino was a key force behind Vizcarra's removal, the move was largely seen as a coup d'etat by many Peruvians, and the people came out on the streets en masse to show their anger and disapproval at the move. While people were suffering under COVID-19 and Vizcarra's popularity took a hit as a result, they were angry at Marino, who they saw as illegitimate and seemed set to build a far-right administration, contrary to the centrism of the Congress elected earlier that year. The protest defied a curfew of 11 p.m. set as part of the COVID-19 mitigation measures. The unrest continued for days until, on November 14, two young men were killed by police during the fifth night of protests. This was, for what it's worth, the final straw for Marino's infant presidency. Marino called the armed forces for an emergency meeting, but it was refused. And so, only five days after becoming president, Marino resigned. Marino was replaced by Francisco Sagasti as president in the same way that he replaced Vizcarra, through the line of succession. Sagasti had always held his presidency to be temporary. He would run again in the presidential election held in May 2021, but only as the second vice president, of which Peru has two, behind a president and first vice president. Still, this meant Sagasti was in power when the 10th crisis, Vacuna Gate, happened. Vacuna is the local term for a vaccine, and it refers to the scandal that broke in February 2021. It was revealed that in October 2020, 487 people, mostly senior officials in Peru's executive branch, were given irregular Sinopharm vaccinations without the knowledge of the Peruvian people. These vaccine doses were provided by universities conducting vaccine trials, specifically the medical researchers. Vaccines were provided to several dozen university staff, including the rector and vice-rector, one of the researchers themselves, and many of the staff and their family members. And of course, many current and former Peruvian administration officials were also part of this irregular vaccination process. Several of Sagasti's cabinet, like the foreign and health ministers, resigned as they were vaccinated irregularly, as well as some people who were part of the vaccine purchasing process. While it is normal and even expected for senior politicians to be vaccinated first, the difference here is that these doses were supposed to be part of the clinical trial before being released to the public and done in secret. This was exposed thanks to the tireless work of several South American journalists who uncovered this whole conspiracy, including several members of the Peru-based Salud con la Pa website. While I do want to say that what I read was translated secondhand from Spanish, so I can't 
vouch for the rest of the site. I do want to quote the site's founder, Fabiola Torres, who said, This was a new way of corruption because the most value was not money. It was vaccines. There are two layers to this. First, the scandal became representative of the endemic corruption in Peru, of how the elites in government and other institutions used their wealth and influence to get access to precious resources like the vaccine, while the people are left suffering. German Magala, the doctor who administered some of the vaccines during the scandal, testified that he administered the trial vaccine to former President Vizcarra at his request, along with many other senior officials. Their ability to obtain vaccines long before the rest of the world contrasted with the high COVID-19 infection rate amongst the Peruvian people, including a severe lack of medical access as well as a oxygen shortage at the time. The other issue that this scandal highlighted was the discovery of excess doses sent to Latin American countries by three major Chinese pharmaceuticals. One of them, Sinopharm, provided 3,200 courtesy doses as part of the phase 3 clinical trial done in Peru, and those courtesy doses were used to inoculate the elite in secret. Peru's Minister of Health, Pilar Mazetti, bragged publicly that the captain is the last to leave the ship and claimed that she was the last to be vaccinated amongst her department, when in fact she got hers long before anybody did. She was one of those who resigned in the wake of the scandal. These courtesy doses were exposed by an investigative nonprofit outlet, Ojo Publico, who also found that these courtesy doses were being sent to other Latin American nations as well. These doses were supposed to be part of each country's phase 3 trial, but Argentina, Chile, Peru, and possibly Mexico received far more doses than required. One company, Sinovac, even sent more courtesy doses than was needed for the actual trial to Chile. If you are confused by the implication of these excess doses, think back to Fabiola Torres' quote earlier. Vaccine doses are more precious now than even money, with so many countries unable to purchase even with sufficient funds. The implication, of course, is that these courtesy doses are that sweetener needed to lubricate further deals between the pharmaceuticals and government officials. It is corruption, but with vaccines instead of cash or in kind. Still, Peruvians got their vaccines, and as of September 15, 2021, a third of Peruvians have been fully vaccinated. Like many nations, Peru sees vaccinations as the best way out of the pandemic, but several factors make both distribution and acceptance of the vaccines difficult, especially amongst the rural and indigenous populations living in hard-to-reach communities. I quoted an article at the start about a village named Chota gripped by COVID-19. The nearest ICU bed there is hours away, and ventilators are of course even more inaccessible. The residents attend five, six, seven masses a day, as everyone knows multiple people who have died of this disease. The hospitals are full, and there is no way to get medical attention even if they wanted to. 
Similar challenges plague the indigenous communities living in the Amazon. Some of these communities take hours to reach by boat, even in the best case scenarios. Doctors who administer the vaccines have to take them in blue coolers and hope that the vaccine is still viable after the long journey there. These are communities where modern amenities, let alone modern medicine, rarely reaches. But it doesn't mean that COVID-19 doesn't affect their communities too. The Shimaku, or Warina indigenous group, is a loose collection of semi-nomadic tribes in the Peruvian Amazon, totaling a couple of thousand people at best. According to a local activist, at least five Shimaku women have died of COVID-19. And unfortunately, even when vaccines do arrive, there is still a lot of reluctance amongst the indigenous. Even on the shores of Lake Titicaca, familiar conspiracies can be heard amongst the skeptical. That the vaccine makes you sterile, that there are microchips in the vaccine, that the shot can make you magnetic. Having been under attack from outsiders in the federal government for literal centuries, many of the people living there have developed a distrust of the vaccines, leaving them vulnerable to unfounded rumors and fear tactics. For example, the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori sterilized about 273,000 indigenous women between 1990 and 2000 not to mention the various acts of oppression, discrimination, and racially targeted violence that is happening even in the modern day. These and other factors make the struggle to vaccinate the most vulnerable even more of a challenge. The factors that made Peru vulnerable to COVID-19, the political instability, corruption, poverty, and geographical factors are still ongoing as of time of writing. The new elected president, Pedro Castillo, is already facing fresh political turmoil with his hard left beliefs and controversial coalition facing strong resistance from former Fujimorians and other neoliberals and right-wingers. That said, Peru's economy is set to bounce back in 2021 after falling harder than any other Latin American nation. Time and the success of a new left-wing administration will determine whether this prosperity trickles to those most affected by the past two years. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For correspondence and corrections, please email them to contact at derigod.me that is c-o-n-t-a-c-t at d-e-r-r-y-k GAN.ME. If I can make this podcast work, I'd like to hear from you, your story of dealing with this pandemic, and if you have any suggestions for future topics you'd like me to look into. I apologize once again for any mistakes, truncations, and errors I have made in this preceding episode, of which I'm sure there are many. And as always, if you can, get yourself and everyone you know vaccinated, wear a mask if you can, and always wash your hands. Thank you.